Well, good morning, everybody. Um, I hope you're enjoying the alumni weekend. My name is uh, David Grills. I'm a tutor in the Department for Continuing Education and a fellow of Kellogg College here in Oxford. Um, I'm writing a book on love and sex in Victorian fiction. And when I tell people that, I tend to have either of two responses. The first response is sex, but there isn't any. Um, the second response, after they've obviously thought that for a second, is for a smile to creep over their face and then for them to say, ah, oh, yes, I see what you mean. They were a dirty lot, the Victorians, really, weren't they? Very hypocritical. But in fact, my book um, is, isn't about the lower reaches of uh, Victorian literature. It isn't about the pornographic underworld. Uh, I mean, I've had to read some pornography uh, purely for research purposes, obviously, <laughs> um, in order to make comparisons with the mainstream novels that I'm dealing with. And um, basically, I start from a paradox that Victorian novels are 95% about romance and courtship. If you had to pick a single theme that they're about, that's it. Um, they're about people falling in love and getting married and having children. And this, of course, involves uh, people being sexually interested in each other and having sex. How are you going to get round that when you're not allowed, as it were, to mention a lot of it? And my book really is a, in two parts. The first part is much briefer. It's about the constraints on expression in Victorian fiction. And the second part is about the ways round these constraints that various authors found. And that part in this lecture I shall divide into two. Um, one way round is not saying, and the other way round is saying obliquely. And that is the uh, part that I'm most interested in. If I start with the constraints on expression, well, they were severe. I don't want to go into the underlying cultural reasons for this. Um, it was something to do with the preeminence of evangelicalism in Britain in the 19th century. And certainly, um, there were much stricter constraints on expression in British fiction in the 19th century than there were on French, say. It's true that Madame Bovary was Pub, uh, prosecuted for obscenity in 1857, but if at the end of the century you look at the works of someone like Maupassant in Belle Amie, for example, you'll see that uh, that could never have been published um, in the 1880s, even 1890s um, in Britain. Although it's difficult to pin down the exact reasons why there were constraints culturally, we do know very precisely what the mechanisms of constraint were. And I just want to say something briefly about those um, to begin this talk. Um, Victorian novels were published in the main in three separately bound volumes. And these retailed at a guinea and a half, 31 and sixpence, probably the most stable commodity price in Victorian England. Stayed the same for 70 years, in fact. Um, it's difficult to make exact translations of Victorian sums of money to modern times. 
but 31 and sixpence would be £1.50. You could multiply by at least 70 for most of the century. So if you wanted to buy a three-volume novel in the Victorian period, it would cost you 100 to £120 in modern values. Not many people bought books for that reason. In fact, what they did was they borrowed the books from the circulating libraries. You could take out a, a guinea a year subscription, and that would allow you to read just one volume of the book. Uh, you couldn't take out the whole three-volume or four-volume novel, otherwise you'd need three or four subscriptions, which would defeat the purpose of getting your reading matter at a lower price. So people joined the circulating libraries. The biggest one was Moody's, M-U-D-I-E, Moody's, Presbyterian Scotsman set it up, headquarters in Oxford Street, and they sent books out all over the country, and indeed all over the empire, in book boxes. Um, later, the rival uh, circulating library was W.H. Smith, which started um, as um, a bookseller or a stationer's um, at Exeter um, railway station, I think it was, but certainly is that, and then they turned into a library, and some people would know that, um, you know, like Boots, they continued it as um, circulating libraries well into the 20th century. Well, the circulating libraries were the first, um, um, first level of constraint upon expression in Victorian fiction. Um, they had readers who would check the books to see if they were going to be acceptable or not. And if they weren't acceptable to the circulating libraries, then it was pretty unlikely that they were going to get published at all. And obviously, they were checked for um, various um, factors. Uh, Moody himself said that he wanted the public to have a barrier of some kind between themselves and the lower floods of literature. And books were vetted on many grounds, uh, no, on characterization, plot interest, religious propriety, um, optimism. They you know, tended to want to have a happy ending in the main, but especially um, on the treatment of sex. Nothing was spelt out very clearly in guidelines. Um, the rule was that there should be nothing disagreeable or unpleasant. And many famous books became victims of the system. Um, Meredith's The Ordeal of Richard Feverell was removed from Moody's as offensive. Uh, Meredith says, I have offended Mr. Moody and the British matron. Um, a famous example is Jude the Obscure by Hardy, uh, his last novel, um, 1895, popularly known in the press as Jude the Obscene. Uh, reviewers said um, it was nothing but dirt, drivel and damnation and hoggishness and hysteria, another reviewer said, referring to the famous pig incident in it. Um, that didn't matter too much until the Bishop of Wakefield read the book, and he was so disgusted that he threw it on the fire back. Um, I hope it wasn't a library copy, but uh, we don't seem to know whether it was or not. And he followed that up with a letter to the Yorkshire Post saying that he had done so because it was a disgusting book, um, Smiths then withdrew um, Judy Obscure from circulation and Hardy's sales collapsed overnight and Hardy never wrote another novel after that. He only wrote um, poetry after that. Um, by the end of the century, writers like George Moore and Thomas Hardy were attacking this um, system. 
Now, the other way that you could get your reading matter in the 19th century was in a magazine. Before books were published in three separately bound volumes, they tended, most of them, to be serialised. Um, this could either be part issue of just the novel, which was the first form of publication that Dickens took, or it could be three or four chapters of a novel in a magazine. When the magazines began, began to spread in the 1850s and 1860s, this was the normal way. Magazines are so-called, of course, because it's from the French magasin, meaning shop, and a magazine is like a shop or a general store where you can get different things off the shelf. So as well as your three or four chapters of Dickens or Hardy or Gaskell or Trollope or Thackeray, you could have puzzles, crossword puzzles, feature articles, illustrations, cartoons, and so on. Um, and they tended to come out in 20 parts. It was, in fact, 19, because the last part was nearly always a double issue. But the editors of the magazines also exercised censorship and would not publish anything that, as Dickens memorably put it in Our Mutual Friend, would bring a blush to the cheek of a young maiden. So this was another area of censorship. By the end of the century, writers who were pushing against the constraints, like Hardy, began to develop sly ways of smuggling back in their original conception. Hardy would um, write the whole novel as he wanted it, uh, more or less. Then he would serialise it, and the serialised version would be toned down. So if you, if you take a novel like, I imagine most people have read, like Tess of the D'Urbervilles, you remember that at the end of that book, um, the angel Claire carries um, four, I think it is, milkmaids across a flooded lane on the way to Melstock Church on a Sunday morning. They've got their best dresses on and the hems would get wet. Um, well, when the book was serialised first in a publication in Britain, rather misleadingly called The Graphic, um, he did not uh, It was carry them across in that way. He wheeled them across in a wheelbarrow. Um, it was considered indecent for an unmarried man to put his hands under the legs of an unmarried woman, let alone four in succession. Um, he's not quite as gallant as he sounds, because he's only doing it to get his hands on Tess at the end. Um, if you check Hardy's texts, you find that he sometimes, over the years, began to put back in what he really wanted for the scene. Um, an example is um, what happened to the text of his book, The Woodlanders. I don't know whether people have read that, but beautiful story, 1880s, set in the forest area of Dorset. Um, tragic love story, of course, <laughs> being by Thomas Hardy. And basically, um, um, Grace Melbury is in love with um, Giles Winterbourne, a very stalwart uh, figure, but her parents wanted to marry somebody uh, finer than that and send her away to finishing school, and she marries this dreadful Dr. Fitzpiers and is very unhappy. And only once in the book do Giles and Grace um, come together um, to, uh, to um, um, personally. By the way, I realise I should have just sent you... That's Alex feeding testimony. That's just a, uh, from Punch, the, um, a cartoon of the circulating libraries. A typical Punch humour, by the way, 
um, keeper of circulating library. I'm very sorry, miss, the third volume happens still to be out, but here is the entire novel in one volume. Young lady, oh, that won't do. How on earth am I to find my place in it? Uh, typical uh, kind of punch approach to things. But going back to the woodlanders, there is this just this one moment where they come together. And in the ser- manuscript and the serial version, the sentence reads of Giles and Grace, she started back suddenly from his embrace. Um, then in the second edition of the book, Hardy rewrote the sentence when it came in volume form. She started back suddenly from his long embrace. Then, in 1896, ten years after the book had come out, he rewrote the sentence again so that it read, she started back suddenly from his long embrace and kiss. Finally, in 1912, (laughs) at the age of 72, um, Hardy revisited this sentence yet again so that it reads, she looked up suddenly from his long embrace and passionate kiss. (laughs) Well, one can only speculate how this encounter might have continued (laughs) had Hardy lived even longer than he did. The way things were going, it's probably a good thing he died at the age of 88. I noticed that um, modern books um, pick up on the rewritten version of the text. Uh, This is the Rufus Sewell, Emily Wood film illustrated on the cover uh, of a modern uh, version, Uh, but there's nothing inside to say um, this was the later text of the book. Well, um, what ways round these constraints were they? I mentioned first um, not saying, (laughs) Um, and I want to discuss two forms of not saying. One is on the level of phraseology um, and individual expressions in the books, and one is on the level of um, narrative. On the level of phrasing, (coughs) euphemism was rife in, (coughs) excuse me, in Victorian fiction. Dickens satirises in his um, 1840s novel Martin Chuzzlewit, where he has the sentence, this coarse, this indecorous phrase was almost too much for her for a gentleman sitting alone with a lady to talk about a naked eye. Um, Euphemisms were developed to apply to sex and all its consequences and accompaniments, so childbirth, pregnancy, miscarriage, prostitution, um, illegitimacy. There were ways in which you had to refer to these things, uh, uh, certainly right until the end of the century. I mean, if you take uh, pregnancy, and while we're talking about it, you can uh, ponder this Victorian maternity corset. Um, Well, I was surprised to learn when I was doing my research that the word pregnant itself was originally a euphemism. I came across a piece in the Gentleman's Magazine for the 1790s in which they said, "Um, why do they keep using this word pregnant nowadays? Why don't they just come straight out with it and say, with child? Um, So pregnant was um, a euphemism originally, but then it became much too strong, and one had, in the family way, enceinte, delicate, in an interesting situation, and so on. (laughs) 
Here's one example, and this is from Francis Trollope. You know Anthony Trollope's novels. Well, his mother, Francis Trollope, also wrote novels before him. She became famous for Domestic Manners of the Americans, which put the Americans' backs up very much indeed after she'd had a tour there. Um, this is a novel by Francis Trollope called Fashionable Life, came out in 1856. And then came the crowning joy of being told upon the best authority that Annie, although she certainly was looking rather pale, had nothing at all the matter with her which need cause them the least uneasiness, excepting that it might be found convenient ere long to look about in order to discover in some part of the premises an additional room, <laughs> rather more particularly warm and comfortable than any at present in use. And that's how the heroine's pregnancy is announced. Um, you would think, well, you could hardly write a more elaborately oblique sentence than that. Um, take miscarriage. Um, by the end of the century, um, when things were franker, um, Hardy could write near the end of his novel, A Pair of Blue Eyes, they were coming home and had got as far as London when she was taken very ill with a miscarriage and couldn't be moved, and there she died. That's it. That was 1873, however. <clears throat> in David Copperfield in 1850, it was very different. Dora, David's first wife, um, has a miscarriage. And sometimes when I've taught the book to undergraduates... Um, they have said to me, oh, that isn't in my edition. Um, I, I, I must have a different text. And I then say, it, it is in, uh, but you have to see how the Victorians would put it. And this is chapter 48 of David Copperfield. But as that year wore on, Dora was not strong. I had hoped that lighter hands than mine would help to mould her character and that a baby smile upon her breast might change my child wife to a woman. It was not to be. The spirit fluttered for a moment on the threshold of its little prison and, unconscious of captivity, took wing. When I can run about again, as I used to do, said Dora, and on it goes. I would say, actually, probably a stillbirth, actually, there. Um, Victorian readers had antennae that could pick up a blue implication or a sexual implication at 200 yards on a dark night. Um, and they would be able to, to work out what, what this meant um, in a way that um, modern readers um, often can't. Um, prostitution was um, another ticklish topic. This is um, famous unfinished painting by Dante Gabriel Rossetti called Found, um, a young drover. Um, has um, seen his former girlfriend who's turned to prostitution in the city uh, at dawn as he's coming and he sees a kind of sacrificial lamb symbolically in the background on the cart. Um, he, he, he never finished it. He had an interest in prostitutes because Fanny Cornforth, his mistress, was a former prostitute and he, he used prostitutes himself and wrote a very interesting poem about prostitution called Jenny. Uh, but this is a kind of quasi-biblical way that he's doing it here. Um, prostitution was 
called the great social evil in the Victorian period, it does figure in one way or another in quite a lot of books in, uh, in Mary Barton by Elizabeth Gaskell, in um, Dickens's Dombey and Son, you've got Alice Marwood, in Trollope's The Vicar of Bullhampton, um, in Wilkie Collins's The New Magdalene, in George Gissing's The Unclassed and so on. But they have to be very careful about it. If you think of an early example like Oliver Twist came out in 1838. You remember Nancy, um, who's a prostitute, you know, who gets her head uh, bashed in by Bill Sykes at the end of the book. Um, she's named as a prostitute in a preface that Dickens wrote for Oliver Twist four years, I think it was, after it came out, where he said that Sykes is a thief and Fagin a receiver of stolen goods, that the boys are pickpockets and that the girl is a prostitute I hope to bring out in the novel. But the word prostitute never figures in the text of Oliver Twist. The closest you get to it is a scene near the end of the book when Nancy, who is very concerned about Oliver's safety, gets in touch with the heroine, Rose Maley, and the uh, good um, older man, Mr. Brownlow, and she meets them secretly at London Bridge to tell them what is going on. This leads to her death later. And you get this little bit of speech from Nancy to these respectable figures near the end of the book. Thank heaven upon your knees, dear lady, cried the girl, that you had friends to care for and keep you in your childhood and that you were never in the midst of cold and hunger and riot and drunkenness and, and something worse than all as I have been from my cradle. That would be enough for readers in 1838, and together with the rest of the text, you wouldn't need any more spelling out than that. So that's one kind of not saying. I suppose it's a kind of um, um, way of saying, but saying indirectly, actually, euphemism. Another um, way that euphemism operates is on the level of narrative. Um, certain things are unnarratable in Victorian fiction, and yet the plot requires, for example, that women have babies. Um, so how are you going to do it? And you get the crucial omitted event or action, what I tend to think of as the three dots syndrome, which, of course, you get nowadays too, don't you? You know, the next, you know some asterisks across the page. The next morning, uh, they got up and so on. Um, if we um, went back to pregnancy, I think... Um, Many readers of Victorian novels are surprised to discover that a major female character is pregnant. For example, I wonder how many people have been puzzled when they read Wuthering Heights. And, you know, Catherine, who is very close to Heathcliff, twin souls as children, and then she marries Edgar Linton at Thrushcross Grange. And then we hear that she's terribly ill. Heathcliff has come back, and she's obviously very conflicted. And we're told by Nellie Dean, the narrator at this point, that she's ill with brain fever. And she's very weak, but Nellie hopes that she might recover. And then Nellie says, And there was double cause to desire it, for on her existence depended that of another. We cherish the hope that in a little while Mr Linton's heart would be gladdened and his lands secured from a stranger's gripe by the birth of an heir. And I think for most readers, oh, she's pregnant then. I didn't realise that. 
Even more extraordinary, in George Eliot's Adam Bede, Hetty Sorrel, the beautiful dairymaid, who is seduced by Arthur Donnithorne, the squire's son, it's a favourite motif, by the way, in Victorian fiction, of the poor girl, often a country girl, but sometimes urban girl, who um, wants to be a lady and falls into the clutches of a man of higher class and becomes pregnant. Um, Hetty Sorrel manages to be nine months pregnant without anybody noticing um, in, um, in, among all the other dairymaids and so on. And then she kind of goes away to have her baby. George Moore, who, who's Esther Waters, 1894, was one of the pioneering novels for Franca expression, um, attacked what he called a puerile conventionality of Adam Bede, where he said that Hetty and Arthur, after a flirtation, walked through a wood. <coughs> Three months later, Hetty is discovered to be pregnant. Um, he boasted that, by contrast, in his novel A Mama's Wife, he had written that Dick dragged Kate into the room and the door was slammed behind her. Well, he still had the three dots, so then, um, and in fact, uh, Moore's Mama's Wife was refused by Moody's circulating library. <laughs> so you could see why George Eliot and others wrote as they did. Um, a spectacular example of the missing narrative in terms of pregnancy occurs in an early novel about um, of, um, um, seduction and uh, uh, pregnancy outside of childbirth, which is Elizabeth Gaskell's Ruth, um, 1853. There's a two-month interval between chapters four and five. Ruth Hilton is 15. Henry Bellingham, the Caddish figure, is 23. And they're suddenly seen in North Wales. Ruth is in a white dress and she's quite unconscious of being the object of remark, and they must have spent time in London, and she's pregnant, but it seems to be that she doesn't know that she is pregnant, which I suppose is, is, is possible, um, given the levels of um, education at the time. Um, there's a great debate among literary critics about Tess of the D'Urbervilles. What happens in the chase at night? Is Tess raped by Alec D'Urberville, or is she seduced? Very interestingly... Um, no 19th century reviewers, however much they disapproved of Alec, referred to it as a rape. They all referred to it as a seduction, whereas you can ha can't find any writers, commentators since the mid-20th century onwards who don't refer to it as a rape. A uh, very interesting example of how the threshold of definition has changed. Um, my um, colleague and friend John Sutherland, who was the um, Northcliffe Professor of English Literature um, at UCL, uh, and like me, is interested in a lot of these matters, uh, gets quite indignant about the obscurity and Tess of the D'Urbervilles in one of his books. Quote from Sutherland, the narrative averts its gaze from what happens next and moralises loftily for three paragraphs. Hardy must know what is going on here, even if he chooses not to tell us. Clearly intercourse is taking place while the narrator turns away and prates about olden times. But what kind of intercourse? I think, well, you know, John, this is inquiring too closely you know, into a Victorian novel. We're not supposed to be asking that kind of question. Um, what, before I leave um, narrative ellipsis, if you like, uh, my favourite examples are the omitted conclusion Lots of 19th century novels have a build-up of events that seem to make certain actions inevitable, but then they don't happen. Um, 
In other words, there are these truncated seductions in Victorian fiction. You get all the frisson of the build-up without the wickedness of the consummation. And one of my favourite examples is um, Dombey and Son by Dickens. Mr Dombey is um, a pompous merchant and he's married to this very beautiful, proud woman, Edith Dombey, who despises him and hates him. And she becomes interested in Dombey's manager, Mr Carker, who is an unusual villain in that the main point about him is that he has these shiny white teeth. And there's one bit where he comes along the corridor and you can only see these white teeth coming before his face materialises. You know, it's part of his predatory um, effect, I think. John Carey says in his book on Dickens that Dombey must be the only Victorian novel with a set of dentures as a villain. <laughs> anyway... Um, Edith Dombey um, is a very proud, and some of the writing about her, I have to say, is a little bit clichéd, um, and she, her nostrils are always flaring. And another thing that she does is, we're told that when she's in a proud mood, she spurned her bosom from her, it says, more than once. Um, well, you know, I defer to the women in the audience, but... I'm not sure how you do that, you know, altogether. Um, anyway, there's this kind of showdown. They, they meet Carker and Edith Dombey, Mr. Dombey's wife, meet in a hotel in northern France. And it's been building up for pages, in fact, months, actually, in the serial version. And you think, something's going to happen now. Uh, but it doesn't. <laughs> um, Edith, Edith stands up, her nostrils flare. She spurns her bosom from her, I think. Um, here's the illustration <laughs> that uh, Fizz did, uh, Havelock K. Brown, Dickens' illustrator, did for this episode. Um, and he, uh, Carker's closing in on her, the teeth are gleaming, and, um, and she, doesn't, she doesn't actually say, um, unhand me, sir. <laughs> uh, actually, I, I could never find that phrase, and recently I gave a version of this lecture actually about the Brontes um, in Brussels, and I said I'd never been able to find the phrase unhand me, sir. And somebody sent me a link um, in Nicholas Nickleby. Uh, Kate Nickleby says to Sir Mulberry Hawk, unhand me, sir. She really does. Uh, but Edith Dombey just says, stand back, sir. Stand back, sir. You have fallen upon Sicilian days too soon, she says. Um, this is shorthand for some, you know, sort of Mediterranean, you know, rumpy-pumpy or something, I think. <laughs> and so he's... Corker's appalled. You can see he doesn't look very happy here. He'd gone all the way to France for this, you know. And then suddenly they hear the sound of Mr. Dombey coming up the stairs. He's chased, chased them there and discovered where they are. A kind of kaleidoscopic chase scene follows across northern France with Dombey pursuing Carker in a coach. Carker gets back to England. He's on a railway station. Uh, he's just mopping his brow and thinking he's escaped when who does he see but Mr. Dombey coming along the, 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 the uh, 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 path at the side and without looking, Carker runs across the line to escape him and a train hits him head on. It was one of the early railway novels, 1846, I think. Um, and and Dickens says it struck him limb from limb and the chapter ends 
with Mr. Carker reduced simply to a kind of puddle of plasma on the track. Don't know whether his teeth were <laughs> available for you know, the coroner or not. Uh, but Dickens doesn't mention that. And, it, and it's horrible. And the, the chapter ends, which is also the instalment ending, that they cover the, this sort of mess in tarpaulin and dogs come out and lick it up underneath. Um, there's the punishment for an adulterer that uh, seems to be appropriate. Well, um, let me move on now to the main thing, which is what I want to talk about, is which is ways round the constraints. And obviously I'll just deal briefly with this, but saying indirectly, I'm interested in the techniques of implication in Victorian fiction. In that preface to Oliver Twist that I mentioned, um, Dickens writes that he didn't want to use offensive language, but rather to lead to the unavoidable inference that the life depicted, quote, was of the most debased and vicious kind. In the case of the girl in particular, I kept this intention constantly in view. Very interesting phrase, the unavoidable inference, but unavoidable for whom? Um, you often sense that Victorian novelists are writing on different levels for different readers. Sometimes I think they're giving clues for male readers that they would hope that younger, unmarried female readers wouldn't pick up. I think they did pick them up, actually, but they pretended they didn't most of the time. Uh, for example, if there's a mention of barracks, for example, in a Victorian novel, as there is in... Uh, far from the madding crowd, Sergeant Troy, um, you know, the male readers would certainly know that there's probably going to be brothels and so on nearby. But here we get into the difficulty that writers like me and John Sutherland have, which is the possibility of drawing unintended inferences. And sometimes, you know, I get worried that this book I'm writing is some kind of genre of dirty Mac criticism or something. Um, certainly the novelists often used to warn people off. Wilkie Collins talked about the prurient misinterpretations of his early novel, Basil. But when you look at what the critics said, they were actually quite right about the things he had implied. Um, Hardy, when his strange novel, The Well-Beloved, was criticised for immorality, wrote, What foul cesspit some man men's minds must be and what a night cart would be required to empty them. I hope that's not me, you know, writing this. I think, well, if he said that at the time, what on earth would he make of modern readers and modern critics? Um, some readings of Victorian fiction by modern readers and critics are simply based on misunderstandings. They're based on ignorance of 19th century usage. For example, the term making love, which, as you all know, has changed its meaning. And I've sometimes taught undergraduates, you know, and the book says that um, Edith uh, moved across the room. Henry was coming in that afternoon. He had been making love to her for three weeks now, and she was looking forward to seeing him. And, you know, one student said to me, oh, I, di I didn't realise that it had gone as far as that. But no, you know, it hasn't. <laughs> it just means that he's being terribly... Plight and 
paying court to her. And likewise, you know, um, their intercourse was now of two weeks' duration or something, you know. No, it's, it's social intercourse. So it's all that kind of thing. And sometimes you can find passages in Victorian novels where um, words have systematically acquired different meanings over a century, a century and a half, um, and the effect is ludicrous, and you feel like you'd like to warn the author of what's going to happen to his text in the future. I mean, a few years ago, I did a little book for the BBC, BBC Education, about uh, television versions of um, Dickens, and one of them was the serialisation of Martin Chuzzlewit that people might have um, seen. Um, in Martin Chuzzlewit, there's um, a very good character called Tom Pinch. He's one of these um, one of these kind of worthy losers that you get in in Dickens. You know, he's terribly kind of ineffectual and but awfully nice. And he plays the organ and so on, and he's very uh, kind of pious and decent. And he's hopelessly in love with the beautiful heroine Mary Graham. And one day he goes into the church and he finds that Mary Graham has crept in and is singing and playing uh, the organ. Um, and you get this unfortunate paragraph in Martin Chuzzlewit. When she spoke, Tom held his breath, so eagerly he listened. When she sang, he sat like one entranced. She touched his organ, and from that, and from that bright epoch, even it, the old companion of his happiest hours, in, <laughs> incapable, as he had thought, of elevation began a new and deified existence. And you feel like saying, stop, stop, you know. Um, erase that paragraph, because in 150 years' time, everybody will be laughing at it, you know. <laughs> but, but readings, sexualised readings of modern, um, uh, of Victorian fiction, aren't simply based on mistakes. I mean, you've got this whole army of um, sophisticated modern readers finding sexual implications everywhere in Victorian fiction. So this is another um, danger that I feel that I've got to steer by. Um, I mean, the kind of sense of astonishment, you wouldn't believe the stuff that's published, actually. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, there was an article um, arguing that George Eliot's work could all be explained on the grounds that she suffered from penis envy. And the article was by Reva Stump and Karen Horney. Um, and think, well, you know, if you had those names, I mean, I'm not in a good position with, you know, to uh, evade mockery with the name Grills that people always make jokes about, but if you had those names, would you write on something like that? Um, here's um, a, a notorious or famous modern example. Uh, William A. Cohen, uh, professor at Duke University, was, in his book Sex Scandal, The Private Parts of Victorian Fiction. He has a chapter, a whole chapter in his book called Manual Conduct in Great Expectations, in which he says that most people have not noticed that Great Expectations is actually all about masturbation. It's true that most people haven't noticed this. Um, and he points to the masturbatory symbolism of Pip 
hiding a piece of bread and butter down his trouser leg so as to smuggle it later to Magwitch. Quote, the secret burden oppresses the boy's conscience and makes it difficult to walk. He goes and escapes to his bedroom, Cohen says, butter trickling down his thigh all the while and surreptitiously unburdens himself. Well, it wasn't toast that he was taking to Magwitch, so why would the butter be... I mean, you know... A cheese sandwich with bread and butter would just have butter on, wouldn't it? I mean, this bit, he's introduced this stuff about it sliding down his thigh and so on. Now, we are very aware, um, primed by writers like Cohen and Stump and Horney and so on, of implications that we see but the Victorians didn't. And we're terribly proud of this, I think, you know, these Freudian symbols and giveaway phrases and buried desires and so on. But the emphasis of my study is that there are actually many implications available to the Victorians that we don't pick up so readily. And what I'm trying to do is reconstruct the social world and the conventions of expression, um, of, of signalling of the Victorian period, to see how they would have been, might have been read at the time. So I'm looking... Yes, partly for images and symbols and tropes and metaphors, these coded implications that allow readers to discern what is happening while allowing the writer apparently to comply with the rules of good taste. They had to do that, otherwise they wouldn't get it past the magazine editors and the readers for the circulating libraries. I'll come on to symbols and images in a moment, but another thing that I'm very interested in is social rituals and entertainments. I'm interested in things like dancing, singing, eating, dining, um, cultural and sporting events, parties, parlour games, all the social activities at which the sexes would come together and there would be some possibility of communication and of courtship. Um, so um, if you take dancers... I mean, balls were often places in Victorian novels where assignations could be arranged, so you get kind of private conversations. But dancing um, could also be used to symbolise sexual attraction and compatibility and to suggest excitement. Um, and that's why, I think, um, there are so often um, dancers... Um, in Victorian novels, and even more in modern films and adaptations of Victorian novels. There's virtually none of them in which you don't get a dancing scene at some point and the kind of um, who speaks to whom uh, and so on, you know, uh, accounts here. And this picks up certainly on um, what happened in Victorian novels. I mean, if you take... I've got an example here from Under the Greenwood Tree, early novel by Thomas Hardy... 1872, I think it was. And this, the, the picture we've got here is a, you know, more higher class ball, whereas it's a kind of local, more like a kind of barn dance that is arranged in under the green, greenwood tree. And all you need to know is that the hero of under the greenwood tree is Dick Dewey, and he's in love with Fancy Day, this young woman who's come in as the church organist and is pushing out the, qu the choir that used to sing in the church. But she has some other suitors, and one of them is Mr Shiner, an older man, as old as 35, I think, 
um, who is a, um, a church warden and a farmer, and she seems to be interested. And everything we need to know about what's happening here in terms of desire and rivalry comes out in the dancing. Um, I'll just give you a few examples. Mr. Spinks organises a dance, and he says... Dancing, he said, is a most strengthening, livening, and courting movement, especially with a little beverage added. Um, and so you've got Mr. Shiner, aged about 35, farmer and church warden, um, turning up, and the dancing starts in this um, chapter. Um, and um, we get um, Fancy was dancing with Mr. Shiner. Um, Dick knew that Fancy, by the law of good manners, was bound to dance as pleasantly with one partner as another, and yet he couldn't help you know, feeling jealous. And this chapter, with chapter 7, um, towards the end, um, has this bit of exchange between Dick and Shiner. Mr. Shiner, you didn't cast off, said Dick, for want of something else to demolish him with, casting off himself and being put out uh, at the farmer's irregularity. Perhaps I shan't cast off for any man, said Mr. Shiner. I think you ought to, sir. And so this kind of rivalry here, you know, is breaking the rules of the dance. The next chapter is actually called They Dance More Wildly. <laughs> and um, we told again and again did Dick <coughs> share his love's hand with another man and wheel round, then more delightfully promenade in a circle with her all to himself, his arm holding her waist more firmly each time and his elbow getting further and further behind her back till the distance reached was rather noticeable and most blissful, swinging to places shoulder to shoulder, her breath curling round his neck like a summer zephyr that had strayed from its proper date. And a bit later, um, Fancy was now held so closely that Dick and she were practically one person. Here you realise that it's the restrictions of Victorian fiction that make it so erotic. This is terribly erotic scene, isn't it? It's like a crackle of electricity. And compared with, you know, modern novels, like, you know, the full frontal sex that you get in, I don't know, port noise complaint or something like this, uh, by Philip Roth, um, you, you, you need, as it were, this restriction to get the excitement of breaking it. And towards the end of the chapter... Um, the dance breaks up, the women go to get their coats, everybody goes home, and Dick has these reflections. What a difference, thought the young man, hoary cynic pro tem. What a miserable, deceiving difference between the manners of a maid's life at dancing times and at others. Look at this lovely fancy through the whole past evening, touchable, squeezable, even kissable. For whole half hours I held her so close to me that not a sheet of paper could have been slipped between us. And I could feel her heart only just outside my own, her life beating on so close to mine that I was aware of every breath in it. A flit is made upstairs, hat and cloak put on, and now I no more dare touch her than thought failed him and he returned to realities. <laughs> many, many scenes of that kind um, Another thing would, of course, be singing, uh, singing in the parlour at the piano and so on. This is from a wood engraving of 1862. But the harmony and the rise and fall of voices and who harmonises with whom, you have to read the lines carefully to pick all that up. For example, in a pre-Victorian novel, but Victorian in this respect, Emma by Jane Austen, you remember that there's... I hope I'm not giving away the story to anybody who hasn't read it yet... Um, <laughs> that there's a secret engagement between 
um, Frank Churchill and Jane Fairfax. But Emma thinks, Emma Woodhouse thinks that Frank is in love with her. Uh, if you read carefully the bit at the Coles dinner party, you find that when Emma sings with Frank Churchill, um, a second slightly but correctly taken by Frank Churchill, we hear. And then Emma resigns her place, as it puts it, to Jane Fairfax, who sings a duet with Frank. We're told casually, they'd, they'd sung once or twice at Weymouth, it appeared. <laughs> and um, Emma's mind wanders on to other thoughts, but in the middle of those thoughts, it just says these thoughts, to which the sweet sounds of the united voices gave only momentary interruption. Um, so you'd have to remember that Frank and Jane were singing. You'd have to pick up the clue that they are the real couple who are harmonising. But it's all there in the symbolism of the singing. Another thing that um, was horse riding, uh, that's a not very good contemporary illustration of Rochester in Jane Eyre on horseback. Remember that he actually meets Jane when he falls off his horse and he has to lean on her for her to help him. He's... Um, uh, anticipating the end of the novel, actually, where he goes blind and he leans on her again as she, um, she leads him out. Um, the idea in the Victorian period was that um, men rode horses, and this was part of their dash and um, virility, uh, long before these rearing stallions in D.H. Lawrence, the Victorian novelists were on to the symbolism of power in horses and horse riding. And um, women were discouraged in the main from riding because it was, of course, very dangerous. But a dashing woman would ride to hounds. Um, the riding habit was um, tighter fitting than the crinoline that was um, obligatory in the 1860s or the bustle in the 1880s. Timid women won't ride. You think of somebody like Fanny in Mansfield Park, um, who, well, admittedly, she gets a headache just walking around the Rose Garden, but um, she get, uh, Ed, Edmund gets a little pony, and she goes up and down very cautiously on it. But, uh, but Mary Crawford, who's never ridden before, is off, you know, and you get the kind of uh, symbolism of this. Um, many Victorian novels deal with horse riding in this symbolic way. For example, it runs all the way through Daniel Deronda, great novel by George Eliot, um, uh, the symbolism there um, all the time. Uh, and she marries this horrible man, Grand Court, most, one of the most icy and unpleasant villains in Victorian fiction, Gwendolyn does. Um, and she feels good in her riding dress and so on, but... Uh, then there's all this stuff about he, he's making a kneel like a horse and he's got the whip hand and so on. Um, also in Daniel Deronda, actually, is archery. That was um, a social entertainment that brought the sexes together. Showed off a woman's bust to adva advantage, which I think explains its popularity, again, in film versions of 19th century novels. For example, in the 1930 um, version of Pride and Prejudice, you remember, with Laurence Olivia and Greer Garson. There's an archery scene that you scour the text in vain to find. And I noticed that in a recent film version of Jane Austen, more recent, the one with Gwyneth Paltrow as Emma, yes, archery's there again in it, but it's not in the text of Emma either. Um, however, it does come um, in Daniel Deronda and other books. Uh, Gwendolyn says she, she, she um, joins an archery club. There is nothing I enjoy more than taking aim and hitting. 
her main rival is actually a woman called Miss Arrowpoint. <laughs> uh, but Gwendolyn is a better shot and so on, and Gwendolyn attracts more notice and says archly, if I am to aim, I can't help hitting. This occurs in masses of, um, of minor novels as well. Um, for example, I just picked one here as an example of archery. The Man of Fortune, 1859, by an author who rejoiced in the name of Albany de Grenier von Blanc. Um, there's a lot of stuff about archery, and I just quote one bit. It was a pleasant sight to see that fair toxophilite in her tightly fitting dress of Lincoln green. She had a fine figure and was a skillful archeress. Uh, he adds almost as an afterthought, uh, or after almost visibly salivating, I think, over this figure. Let me come finally to um, symbols and images. Many of these used in Victorian fiction were traditional. Remember that Victorian fiction was a mainstream popular art form uh, with a mass audience. And so um, it picked up on the kind of symbols that had been established in English poetry, for example, for decades. So the symbolism of whiteness and redness, you know, whiteness standing for chastity, and lilies and so on, redness standing for passion with roses, um, all the way through Tess of the D'Urbervilles from the very beginning, you get this white-red colour symbol symbolism. The woman in white uh, in, by Wilkie Collins, again, the same, the same thing uh, happening there. Um, there are many symbols, but let me just concentrate on one quickly. I'm very interested in women's hair in Victorian fiction, um, particularly the symbolism of disordered hair. Um, Female hair is constantly associated with sexual desirability, and there are many highly charged scenes in which women comb their flowing tresses or they have them brushed by a maidservant. This is Dante Gabriel Rossetti's Lady Lilith, who was, in legend, the first husband of Adam, uh, was presented as a temptress um, and a dangerous character, but very, very beautiful. He first used Fanny Cornforth for the face. as another version with her, but then changed to another mi mistress. We won't analyse it now, but you could almost use that picture on the front of a book like uh, a Mary Elizabeth Braddon's Lady Audley's Secret, where there's a description of a, um, an unnamed um, pre-Raphaelite painter, but this is the kind of thing that Braddon had in mind, obviously. Um, men are always trying to touch women's curls. Women seal amorous promises by offering their locks as keepsakes and so on. Um, but um, the main thing is that um, disordered hair is um, nearly always sexually revealing in Victorian fiction. And the reason for this lay partly in cultural traditions inherited from earlier periods but partly in the conventions of coiffure dominant in the Victorian period. I looked in vain, actually, to find a single book on the history of women's hairstyles in the 19th century. If anybody can find one, I'd be glad to know about it, but I've looked and looked. Um, what you do find is histories of costume, and they have a section on hairstyles. Um, and it, women's hairstyles varied considerably throughout the 19th century from the corkscrew ringlets favoured in the 1830s 
through the centre partings and braids of mid-century to the elaborate chignon of the 1860s and the coiled top knots and uncovered ears fashionable in the 1890s. Even specialist historians have difficulty tracking this, you know, the year-by-year -year changes in plaits and braids and rolls and curls and ringlets, not to speak, of course, of the diverse decorations of women's hair with bows and ribbons and feathers and flowers and clasps and combs and goodness knows what. But one feature remained constant, and that was that in public, a respectable woman's hair would be dressed or caught up in some form. Loose, flowing, or dishevelled hair was therefore always significant. If you look up the phrase, letting your hair down, in Brewer's Dictionary of Phrase and Fable, or in the Oxford English Dictionary, you find that it refers to the moment at the end of a social event where women were together, because the men had withdrawn, you know, to smoke and so on, and they would unclutch their hair and talk about how things had gone, and that was letting their hair down. But normally, apart from to other women in that kind of context, a woman's hair would only be seen down by her husband or by a lover. Um, and it was... Um, well, hair that was down, this is going back to earlier periods, was a traditional symbol of abandonment. It, um, it could be sexual abandonment, uh, being unchaste. It could be abandonment of reason, um, insanity. Um, in uh, Shakespeare's play, Troilus and Cressida, um, there's an uncharacteristically long stage direction, probably from Shakespeare himself, um, <coughs> which says, enter Cassandra, raving with her hair about her ears. <laughs> she was the prophetess, you know, who was condemned always to make correct predictions and never to be believed. But she's gone mad, raving with her hair about her ears. This is why, if you think of operatic mad scenes, uh, Lucia de Lammermoor and so on, they always come on, don't they, with their hair dishevelled. Um, um, in the 19th century, only little girls had their hair down. When a woman came out you know, became adult, her hair would be pinned up. Um, and, um, and that means that when you read novels, you can work out what is going on by the degree of dishevelment of women's hair. Someone like Dickens calibrates it absolutely exactly. I mean, if we go back to Oliver Twist, for example, uh, we're told in the text that the prostitutes, Bet and Nancy, wore a good deal of hair um, not very neatly tied up behind and were rather untidy about the shoes and stockings. When David Lean made a version of Oliver Twist, he got that right. Here's Kay Walsh as David Lean's Nancy, uh, looking rather respectable, I think, in many ways. Uh, but the hair there, the tangled hair, uh, is no respectable woman would go out looking like that. So hair was frequently used to suggest sexual transgression or corruption. But it was also used in another form as a symbol of fidelity. And this was as the lock of hair um, kept as a keepsake in a locket. Um, the Victorians had a huge thing about lockets, as you probably know. Here's a beautiful example of it. Um, and um, lockets as keepsakes. Here's one with, uh, with, with uh, uh, portraits in. 
But in Victorian Britain, the treasuring of hair was so common that a whole industry developed to meet the demand. Snippets were preserved in, not just in lockets, but in brooches, bracelets, in rings, in medallions. The hair itself could be worked into a variety of elaborate patterns, and some examples of these were displayed um, at the Great Exhibition in 1851. Uh, they were tokens of fidelity. Well, you couldn't read long in Victorian fiction without encountering this. For example, um, it's quite surprising in Wuthering Heights, the bit where um, Catherine is terribly ill and she dies, um, and Heathcliff is there, and he comes into the bedroom, um, he creeps in when he shouldn't do, and he finds that um, a curl of light hair on the floor, fastened with a silver thread. Uh, so, sorry, Nellie Dean finds this. Heathcliff goes in and he finds a locket round um, Catherine's neck, which he tears off. And in the locket, she's got some light brown hair from her husband, Edgar Linton, with hers. Heathcliff opens the locket, throws the light brown hair on the earth, pulls out a bit of his black hair and puts that in the locket. Nellie Dean discovers this and she picks up the bit that's been thrown down, puts all three bits of hair together, puts it back on to uh, Catherine, um, and in a sense, you know, Nellie's gesture sends Catherine into eternity, married to both men uh, there, and Victorian readers would pick up on this. Well, I haven't got time to, to discuss all the other things, but, uh, for example, sword display, uh, symbolic sword display, as you get in far from the madding crowd, is Sergeant Troy um, with, um, um, with, with uh, uh, Bathsheba Everdeen. But let me just end by mentioning one thing, blood transfusions. Um, blood transfusions were dodgy in the 19th century. It wasn't until 1901 that blood groups were ascertained, and so they were tended to be dangerous. Many critics have noticed that in Dracula, 1897, uh, three different men love Lucy Westenra, and all of them give blood to her, and uh, as Van Helsing says, she's becoming like a polyandrist, it says, because it's taken to be like sexually uh, symbolic, and a lot's been written about that. But how many people, I wonder, have noticed that in Charles Reed's Griffith Gaunt, 1866, uh, there's another sim symbolic blood transfusion 30 years before Dracula. It, I'll be very quick, but this is a, um, a, a historical novel where Griffith Gaunt believes wrongly that his wife's been unfaithful and he abandons her for a long time and then he hears she's very ill and he comes back and she's dying and um, the doctor says to him, she is apparently dying, she is sinking for want of blood. If you consent to my opening a vein and transfusing healthy blood from a living subject into hers, I will undertake the operation. The young doctor whipped off his coat and bared his arm. Here came an interruption. Griffith Gaunt griped the young doctor's arm and with an agonised and ugly expression of countenance cried out, What? Your blood? What right have you to lose blood for my wife? Griffith tore off his coat and waistcoat and bared his arm to the elbow. Take every drop I have. No man's blood shall enter her veins but mine. And the creature seemed to swell to double his size as with flushed cheek and sparkling eyes he held out a bare arm corded like a blacksmith's. The young doctor eyed the magnificent limb a moment with rapture, it says. He sent some of Griffith's gaunt's bright red blood smoking hot into Cape Gaunt's veins. Well, it works. She recovers. 
and later it was from a talkative nurse she first learned that Griffith had given his blood for her. She said nothing at the time, but lay with an angelic, happy smile, thinking of it. And then she tells her father confessor that she had never been quite the same woman since she lived by Griffith's blood. It had given him a fascinating power over her. You can't tell me that's just a blood transfusion. <laughs> well, I've got no time for clothes, gloves, fire, food, rivers, carriages, locks and keys, and the full significance of horse riding, but I hope I've said enough to suggest that there is sex as well as love in Victorian fiction. Thank you very much. <laughs>